Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for loadbox, cabinet, and mic simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me is someone I've been looking forward to speaking with for a while. His name is Dino Medanhodzik. He's from Sweden. Uh, you may or may not know of him. If you're Swedish, you definitely know of him, which I've come to learn from all our Swedish listeners. Um, I actually haven't had a more requested producer on here by Swedish uh, listeners than him. So uh, it comes in pretty high demand. I didn't realize that I've been listening to his work for quite a while. Um, sometimes I will put on... Uh, I'll just search pop music or European pop music or something in YouTube and put that on in the background while I'm doing stuff. And I came across an artist named Daughter, who's a female artist from Sweden. And I remember listening to the mixes and being like, God, this is so lush. This sounds so damn good. I love this. Um, and um, eventually, um, I did some research and I realized that this is the dude that everyone was telling me about. Then I came to learn that he also does a ton of metal um, and heavy stuff. So that's kind of interesting to me. Um, he owns a studio called Radionica Studios in Stockholm. And uh, what else can I say? Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, it, let's get right into it. Um, why... What what leads you or what draws you to producing music at such, uh, I guess, so far apart, like metal <laughs> and pop and electronic and then brutal? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm just, uh, I don't know, I just get so bored <laughs> too, too early on in everything I do, so I just... I'm not able to do the same thing over and over again. So, uh, I don't know, just restless, restless guy. I don't know. <laughs> I understand the boredom factor. It Actually, um, when I was producing full-time, it used to make me insane. Um, I felt like maybe getting out of metal would have been the answer. Um, but then this whole thing happened with the podcast and now the mix, and yeah. that was my ticket to not being bored. But... I totally agree that when you're doing the same thing over and over, like there's a certain personality type that it seems like they can't do that. They'll just go nuts, yeah. like like get depressed and anxious and just hate life. So that's what it was for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I just need some excitement. I that that's what I need. And I also, I mean, I, I've always loved all kinds of music. The the metal thing for me came pretty late. Actually, I, I didn't listen to metal music. Up until maybe I was, I don't know, 14. I actually started playing guitar when I was 10. So so I had like kind of long period of listening to Beatles and 
I don't know, uh, like uh, I'm from Yugoslavia originally, so I listen to a lot of Balkan music, uh, Goran Bregovic and stuff like that. So um, I don't know, I just like all kinds of music. And that's uh, that's important too, because you have to have a passion for what you do. You can't just take on a lot of different genres and you don't know what you're doing, basically. So, yeah. So you would say that you're pretty familiar um, with the genres you work on from the standpoint of a listener? Yeah, I would say, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, from time to time, there there are projects I do that I just don't have a clue, and I just try to absorb it as much as possible uh, right before I get into them. But uh, but I'm really open to anything, and I, I truly love all kinds of music, so it's not a big deal for me to get into new stuff. Well, I think it's interesting that you say that, because uh, lots of times when I hear metal guys trying to do other genres... Or other genres trying to do metal, they they tend to do a really bad job. Okay. Because usually, when you get a metal guy trying to do something outside of metal, if they don't listen to it and they don't understand it, then they typically try to do a metal mix for another genre. And it, you know, like you have something soft with like huge samples or whatever <laughs> that just don't make any yeah. sense. Um, and then sometimes I've heard with some productions by guys who don't understand how metal works uh when they try to do metal it sounds really really weird and weak and doesn't have the same level mm. of uh of power that but so i definitely think there's something to be said for knowing the uh the genres that you're uh, going into so you're not originally from sweden how did you end up there well you know there was that war we had in yugoslavia 92 uh Like in the start of the 90s, there there was uh, mm-hmm. the big conflict between uh, all those different parts, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia. So there was a huge war there. And uh, all the people, since we, my family, uh, my mother and father was uh, from two different religions, basically. And that was a big, big no-no. So I was like a bastard child or something. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't be the mixed religion over there and uh, it would be horrible. So, so we had to move there. Um, Moved from uh, Yugoslavia, and uh, we, yeah, we just uh, went as far up as possible, basically, and we ended up in Sweden. And they just, yeah, the, the most amazing country ever to just bring in people like that and taking care of everyone. We there, there was like no issues at all. Do you remember life there, or were you too young? Yeah, I was six, seven years, something like that. I, so I started school there, actually. I learned, uh, uh, like, we have a different scripture. I don't know what you call it in English. Kyrilliska, uh, we say. It's, it's like in Russia. You know, in Russia, you have uh, those, uh, it's like different, different. it's not um, typical letters. I don't know what you call that. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about. You know, Uh, it, though I don't know, if I, no. <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to name it because I'll yeah. uh, I'll reveal how dumb I am. Uh, same here. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. So I, I learned that uh, type of stuff, and uh, so I remember a lot of stuff from the war as well. Um, there were, yeah, a lot of horrible stuff going on there. So so in some way, yeah. I mean, in some way, that kind of made me a bit colder person. <laughs> I don't know, like, I, I, got, I got really nerdy and uh, to myself and really shy and introvert and stuff like that. So I think that was kind of a good thing for me when it came to playing music and getting into all this <laughs> stupid studio work when you, you really have to be kind of uh, 
introvert and nerdy to, to get into this field, I think. Well, it takes a special kind of person to be able to sit there yeah. for 10 to 12 hours in a dark room with a computer <laughs> yeah, definitely. and listen to things over and over and over and over. Yeah. So did you start with music when you were still over there or did that start in Sweden? Yeah, that started in Sweden. I, I saw my dad play guitar when I was 10 years old. He just played a couple of chords uh, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So so he bought me an acoustic guitar and uh, the thing is that he also bought me an instructional video. <laughs> and th- that video was, you know those old VHS cassettes you could buy with the uh, Guitar Hero oh, play, yeah. you know? So there was <laughs> there was a video with Yngwie Malmsteen. I don't know if you know that guy, he's Swedish. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> imagine me, like 10 years old, acoustic guitar, Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that video, you know. So, so I just, I was, my mind was blown. Uh, it was just crazy. So I just started practicing, you know. Um, that video is so funny. That's the one where he's like, here, I'm going to play it full speed. Yeah. And it's like 300 miles an hour. And he's like, now I'm going to play it slow. And then it's the exact same speed. <laughs> exactly. I, oh, man. It was, yeah, that was that was the hardest thing ever. But it was so exciting to me. <laughs> I thought he was the coolest guy ever. But yeah, so that that's how I got into music, basically. I just—I mean, there. you didn't actually start learning Ingve tunes right from the beginning, though, did you? I had to. I didn't know anything else. It was just okay. This is how you play guitar, basically. So, so yeah. So that's how I got into the, the like the sh- guitar shred uh, music, and uh, not really shredding, but but like uh, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. That's my first uh, contact with kind of heavier music, you you could say. So how does it go from guitar shred to pop? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's mainly because I've been listening to pop uh, earlier on. Like that was, I always liked softer music, uh, more like the old school pop, like Beatles and stuff like that. but uh, also, I mean, my family always played pop music at home, and it was just, it was pop everywhere. All my friends listened to pop, and, you know, that was the thing. Yeah, yeah. it's great stuff. Um, so how long, okay, so you started playing guitar at 10. Yeah. With 14, you discover metal. Um, yeah. You're on to shred. Where does uh, the studio come into play? Yeah, so... so uh, I was uh, 15, I think, when I started a band called Soul Breach. Uh, we released one record, but it, yeah, it's really crappy. And there's a reason why it's crappy. Uh, we, we, when we were, yeah, I was 16 years old and we uh, got a deal from, there's a local studio that, that was quite big. And that producer guy over there, he told us, you can record an album here and when you get signed, I'll get paid. So that was the deal. And we we were really excited about that, uh, since a lot of bands that we looked up to recorded over there. And uh, we got in into that studio, and he started recording us on tape. You know, this was back in 2003 or something. So we didn't know how studio worked. I mean, none of us uh, has ever been in a studio, basically. And uh, so he started recording us, and the next day he wasn't even there. He just uh, wasn't in the studio. <laughs> so he just showed us this is the record button, do this thing, and. Uh, yeah, and call it a day. So, so we just sat there by ourselves and recorded ourselves on tape, and it it was uh, yeah, it was a nightmare. I mean, it, 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 yeah, it, yeah, you can imagine. A, yeah, uh, no, well, that actually happened to me once. Yeah, um, when I was like sixteen, 
went to the studio the first time and the the guy that was recording us was like you all the local bands went to this guy's studio but he was a horrible drug addict oh <laughs> um and i mean look we were like 16 and 15 and he would just do heroin right in front of our faces what? at the time i didn't realize how fucked up that was now as an adult i'm like i can't imagine <laughs> someone being so fucked up that they would just do that around a bunch of kids who are going to get picked up by their parents later but um Damn. anyways yeah my dad would have fucking murdered him <laughs> yeah. if i had said it. like literally would have murdered him. Um, my my dad caught me smoking weed once, like years later, and I thought that I was gonna. I thought that I was literally gonna get killed. Oh, but shit. if he had found out that this guy was doing heroin in front of me, he my dad would be in prison for murder for sure. <laughs> but anyway, anyways, so he would he would do heroin, and then go to sleep on the couch. That's and insane. there we are, just so, yeah, just a bunch of kids standing around, like, what do we do? So then one time, he's like, okay, this is how you operate the tape machine. This is how you get it to loop. When you want to record, you press this. I'm I'm going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I started recording. Wow, wow, that's kind of similar story, but that was yeah. way way more horrible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that would never, that would never happen today. I mean, there's, there's no room for those kind of guys. It seems like, it, it, I can't see that happening today. Right? It's yeah. That's crazy. Well, yeah. Yeah, the, things have definitely changed. They, I mean, back then it was like there's two studios that did all the local metal bands in the entire city. Oh, yeah. So you go to one or you go to the other. Yeah, they had the power. Um, Yeah, now, now, no. Now you, you know. You have to work. Do it. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to be fucking awesome if you're going to get clients coming to you. Definitely, yeah. Wow. All right, so back to your story, though. I didn't mean to derail no, you. No, no, that was uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I'll derail if it's a good story. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I mean, that, yeah, that's almost what happened to us. And uh, I, But I was still excited about that because uh, I, always, I always like to have control, you know. So uh, the, the the thought that I could sit in a studio and record wherever whatever I want that was the most amazing thing to me. So that's how I, I kind of it sparked something in me. So right after we were in that studio and recorded that album, uh, we uh, kind of redid our rehearsal room. Uh, there was we we had a rehearsal room next to a friend's band, and so we just decided to make a hole in the wall, you know, and put a window <laughs> between the rooms and uh, it looked like a studio, you know. Um, so uh, we bought really cheap gear. Uh, like I, I got a 24-channel top-of-the-line Behringer mixer. I don't know if you know those. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those. Uh, and uh, there was also those Fostex D80 8-track hard drive recorders. Uh, I don't know if you know those. Yeah, I hate those. Yeah, they're horrible. Like, but we, I we hate did, those. Yeah, me too. I still have one left actually in the rack. No, nobody wanted to buy it like a bunch of years ago. But uh, yeah, that's what what I started out with. And we since there wasn't many studios uh, in the neighborhood, so all of the bands that rehearsed there, they came to us, and we did it free. We just wanted to learn. Uh, so I, I did a couple of years just doing horrible work. <laughs> You know, I didn't have a clue, and it sounded awful. Everything. So, uh, but at the same time, we learned a lot of stuff. Uh, especially for me, it was really important to uh, 
get out of my introvert personality, basically. I was so shy and uh, had a lot of anxiety being with people. So I think that was a huge thing for me to just... Do you think that that anxiety was carried over from having to leave under traumatic situation yeah. and then end up in a brand new place yeah i mean yeah a lot of people have uh, been telling me that and it probably is something like that because no, no, no one in my family has been the way i've been uh, like my dad was the most social and uh, extrovert p- person you can imagine and i don't know i just yeah maybe something happened there when i when we flew the war um, but but it, anyway, it, it helped me a lot just being in that uh, environment, recording a lot of bands. And you know, yeah, you, sp- you especially know how people like that are. Like young kids uh, wanted to be rock stars, and uh, that's uh, yeah. And they they worship you if you're recording them. So that's actually a really good way to get good socially when you're a lot younger. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. Uh, even if the recordings sound crappy, I don't think anybody. When you're that age, I don't think anybody knows that they sound crappy. Like <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like yeah, so, like you know, if there are a bunch of teenagers in the band uh, and they don't know any better, they think it sounds great, and so yeah, you can you can remain friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, but but it's it's all it's all it's a great social tool, I think, when you're younger because it forces you to interact with people hmm. and if you want to get them to come back you need to learn how to interact with them in a very positive pleasant way yeah even even when telling them things that are difficult to tell them exactly yeah and that that's also a struggle that i've been having like how do you tell people this is not good enough and you know basic stuff like that was so hard for me uh, so that's really something that had to be developed. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that I went through all those r- really crappy years. Uh, I would say crappy because I, di- I didn't have any knowledge about uh, the craft, you know, the how do you make stuff sound good? It wasn't much about that. It was more about the uh, psychological factor for me. And uh, so in a sense, I feel like I've spent a lot of years uh, just down the drain, you know, I didn't learn anything. But in another way, when I look at this way, I kind of feel, I'm kind of glad I went through that anyway. Man, I really don't think that that's years down the drain at all. Mm. Um, From my personal experience and also just from everyone we've talked to on this podcast, Mm. the, the personal skills department, the social skills department is so important in this line of work. It's almost as important as being able to do the music part well Mm, Um, because people need to hang out with you for all day every day for weeks or months and so they better at least be able to tolerate you Um, and you and not just anyone can make themselves pleasant to be around like you have to know how to do it in my opinion yeah yeah, i agree Um, especially if you're an introvert um So, honestly, man, I don't think that that's wasted time. Uh, And I can tell you, we have some guys in our group, um, in our private group for Nail the Mix, for instance, who are very talented but have no social skills. And I Mm -hmm. have to talk to them sometimes aside from the group and be like, guys, like, if this is how you behave in the world, I just see online, Hmm. but, like, if this is how you behave in the world and talk to people in the world, you're not going to get very far in your careers because no one's going to want to hang out with you. And if they don't want to hang out with you, they're just going to find someone else who will do the same level of audio work 
but that they can uh, hang out with, or maybe not quite as good, but if they can hang out with them all day, they'll go that direction. Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's really well put. That's really true. So I don't think it's a waste of time. No. Well, <laughs> I try, try to tell myself that, yeah. So this a few years. So when did you feel like you started to get better? Ooh, I mean, I'm still, I'm, still, I'm, well, ne- yeah. I'm never happy, you know. <laughs> but, but, but well, I, when, when I kind of got serious into the whole thing was when uh, I got a chance to work on a Millen Collin album. I, do you know the band Millen Collin? Swedish no. punk. It's uh, like one of the biggest Swedish uh, punk rock bands. Uh, I mean, they're not that big anymore here in Sweden, but they, yeah, most Swedes know who they are, and they've been touring the world for many years and stuff. But they, they have their own studio, Sound Lab, in uh, here in the neighborhood. And um, I was—I uh, feel like I've heard of Sound Lab. Yeah, so, yeah, that's their studio, and a lot of bands been recording there. I, okay. So yeah, but uh, uh, I was in the music store a lot, and. Uh, there, there was this guy working. He, he's, uh, he produced a lot of Millie Collins stuff earlier. And he, uh, Don Svana, I don't know if you know who that is. He, oh, of course. Yeah, all right. Yeah, Edge of Sanity and stuff. Uh, He's been doing a lot of stuff. Uh, I would love to get him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you should. He's done some great work. Definitely, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm really thankful because he, he asked me uh, once, since, since he knew I was doing a lot of stuff and uh, played in bands, and he thought I was kind of good on guitar. I don't know I don't know why he approached me, but he told me that, oh, you, do you know Pro Tools, uh, Beat Detective? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, ne- I never used Pro Tools and didn't know what Beat Detective was. So I, <laughs> I kind of lied him straight up in his face and... He asked me, oh, then maybe you can work on the next Millen Call album, do some editing and stuff like that. And I was, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, that was the biggest deal have for you, me. Had you even used a computer for audio? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. until that, yeah, I have. Uh, I mean, we, we switched pretty early, pretty early on uh, to, uh, I bought a uh, PowerBook power uh, G4 and had Logic way back. Uh, okay. Before Apple owned it, basically. Okay, uh, so at this point, it's not like you were recording on one of those <laughs> Fostex hard disk No, I mean, anymore. it's been a slow transition, but... Uh, Got it. Yeah, yeah, but I, I knew some stuff up until that that point but I didn't I haven't used Pro Tools and I wasn't really interested in other DOS or anything I just thought oh this is uh, oh, I, I, I buy this computer from Apple and I get Logic and you know that's it so I never questioned what DAW to use or anything but but anyway I Immediately when he asked me to do this uh, thing, I went to the other uh, shop, music store, and, and bought like a, you know, a Pro Tools um, LE, for, but it's maxed out, so you can have Beat Detective. Uh, back then, you, you could have all those upgrades and stuff so, to get uh, all the functionality that HD Pro Tools had. And um, yep. so I got that and uh, just spend all my money on that and just practice the whole week before the actual recordings and uh, then I went into the studio with uh, there's this, this it's actually an American producer Lou Giraldo I don't know if you know who that is but he uh, he produced the whole album and uh, j- just being there with him for these two weeks I, I learned like a million times more than in those years before. I mean, that was the that was a complete game changer for me to see how a professional works. And uh, right, it's like almost like until you see how pros do it, um, you you wouldn't you won't understand what quality is exactly. You, you just because have to no experience one, it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, 
I mean, how are you supposed to figure that out for yourself? Exactly. It's, it takes forever, I mean, to read. Yeah. yeah. So, no, so that was, uh, I'm really thankful for that opportunity. And so I, I just sat there and edited a lot of stuff. And Lou, he corrected me a bunch. And, you know, he, he had critiques. And it was so good to hear, like, oh, I'm doing this wrong. And somebody can correct it for me. And... So, yeah, so I just practiced a lot, and all the information he gave me was really valuable. Uh, and right after that recording, it, the guys in Millen Collins started uh, giving me some other jobs, like, you know, random bands from all over the world uh, came in, and I would just sit there and track uh, a lot of bands, <laughs> basically. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how it got kind of serious. So I decided after a while to get my own place, and that's yeah seven years ago or something so that's where i'm sitting right now how did it lead to doing major label pop <laughs> well um as i said i've always been attracted to uh, pop music but here in stockholm where i am right now there's this i mean there's a whole different vibe it's like nobody does metal i mean yeah people do metal but but it's so many songwriters singer songwriters and uh, people writing pop songs to pitching to Asia and stuff like that, and I just got involved with some people in in that realm, and um, I thought it was kind of interesting that you could also be a songwriter. So that's how I got into songwriting in pop music as well. So and since I'm I already was a producer, I combined those things, and uh, the first project was actually Daughter that you mentioned uh, and that's actually my girlfriend <laughs> so we we uh, decided to just um, develop her project uh, in-house so we did everything from scratch and promoted her for different labels and eventually Warner picked her up and that's how I got into uh, having more connections in the major label uh, now world is she, is she well. still your girlfriend yeah yeah actually we live here in the studio so <laughs> it's yeah we, we're, we're living the music uh, bohemic lifestyle <laughs> uh, that's uh, a lot of um a lot of people i know have said never record your girlfriend but i guess <laughs> i guess i guess in your case it worked out it worked out i mean I, yeah having a girlfriend is so hard when you do this it's almost impossible so i'm for me the only the only alternative was to be with someone that understands this lifestyle and does the same thing so she actually we have two control rooms here in my studio so she sits in the small studio and i'm sitting here and we just work all day and then we get together eat food you know so, so we kind of do the same thing but uh, yeah in the same building so we we see does each she other. just does she just work on her own music or is she also working for other artists yeah she works for other artists as well she writes uh, songs for She's she's mainly a songwriter, but she also does some vocals. Like um, I don't know what you call it, ghost vocals. Do you say that? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, for a lot of stuff, uh, and that's how she kind of gets her money right away. And then the songwriting, you know, it always pays off years later. So it's not as uh, secure income. That's cool. So you guys have a little uh, music factory. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually there. why it's called Radionica because it's uh, that means a small factory in uh, oh, Serbia. Cool. Serbian, yeah. I obviously had no idea that that's what it meant. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, the, uh, this is this is interesting. I had no idea that 
that's where you came from or that you recorded your girlfriend and it actually worked out. So interesting things. I have some more technical questions. Yeah, sure. Um, just, you have massive control over low end in your mixes. Oh. It's, it's pretty perfect sounding. Wow, thanks. Um, do you... Uh, wh- do you have any thoughts about how you go achieving your the huge low end sound? Your mixes is it different every time, or have you spent a lot of time thinking about it, or did you just luck into it? I doubt you just lucked into it. No one lucks into good at low end. <laughs> well, that's really interesting that you mentioned low end. Since actually, I've never thought about low end. Uh, I'm mixing NS tens, and I barely hear the low end up until the end of the mix when I have a subwoofer or some headphones at the end. Uh, so, so I nev- never really thought about the low end that much. I, I just uh, try to pick sounds that work together. I don't know. I don't have an exciting answer for that one, but I, I, I mainly struggle with the high end, like the cymbals and stuff like that. That's where I spend a lot of time, and I always struggle with that. But Well, do you think that maybe the low end is a lot easier for you because the arrangements uh, yeah, in your music are very, very good. Well, yeah, I mean, ar- arrangements for me is everything. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if the arrangement is horrible, like the, the, the a bass is playing something that doesn't work at all with the kick drum or whatever. That I mean, I, I can't fix that. I just Instead, I just go in and cut the bass the way I like to hear it, basically. Or I do stuff like that. I don't really... Uh, I don't really try to EQ or make stuff work together, even though I feel it doesn't sound good in context, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say so it's it mostly So better work arrangement-wise. Yeah, I think that's more important, actually, than uh, trying to struggle making something work that really doesn't work. Let's talk about the high end, then, if that's where you say you struggle a lot, because your, your high end sounds silky smooth especially in the vocals oh, um, right. i would never guess that you struggle up there <laughs> okay well thanks because you've got that pop polish on everything you do all right where the high end is present but it's very uh very smooth no pain points or anything like that oh wow thanks it sounds polished so let's, let's talk about that struggle yeah yeah i mean i just spend a lot of time with it i always feel like symbols uh, have uh, so much nastiness going on and i don't know if it's yeah, they're terrible yeah it's, it's yeah it's pain in the ass and i don't know if it's because i i'm, I'm really a minimalist when it comes to equipment and stuff like that so i've been using the same stuff for years and maybe it's time to change things up i don't know it's because i always get those same problem areas all the time and <laughs> I just I just found ways to work around it, but you know you have to notch out some frequencies here and there, and uh, also uh, the the dynamics. Uh, symbols can be really dynamic at times, and some people like that. But then you get all those sudden uh, bursts of uh, high pitched stuff, uh, and you just have to control it, but still have it uh, dynamic. And I don't know, it's it's just a lot of. Uh, tricky stuff going on up there I think what kind of approaches do you take to handling it uh, well yeah as I said I try to cut out all the nasty the nasty yeah you know notch out horrible frequencies now when you do that how do you keep from neutering it M- meaning have you ever noticed that sometimes if you notch too much out 
you end up killing the whole sound. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's the struggle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you just have to find the good balance point. And, and and what I noticed is if you sit too long with the same thing, also you kind of lose track of where you are. So so I always. I always want to finish that stuff up as soon as possible. Just go like, okay, this is good. And I just leave it for a while and then work on something else. Uh, I think that's especially smart when working on high-end material because that will blast your ears so quickly. Definitely, definitely. That's what I noticed after a couple of years. <laughs> okay, that, that's the approach that works best for me, to just leave it for a while and come back. And then you'll really hear those... Uh, Problem like oh man, I just scooped out too much over there, and you know that that it's really apparent when you do it for too long. I think. So, do you consider yourself a fast mixer? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I try to do it as fast as possible. I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what's fast today. I, I don't compare my. I, I don't have many friends in this game, <laughs> so I don't know how they how fast they do it. But uh, I try to do like one song in. Uh, six eight hours tops uh, like the finished product basically meaning mixing or yeah, everything no I mean mixing I mean now, now I'm talking just mixing but do you mean like recording and everything or no no okay I, I'm glad <laughs> six to eight hours from for yeah I'm sure that there's some people out there who do everything in six oh, to eight wow. hours oh wow yeah that's but, that's amazing <laughs> so you so basically like a song a day with mixing yeah it's, yeah I mean it, it is fast it's always the first song if I do an album it's I mean the first song is what takes the whole day and then the rest is pretty quick uh, right after so that. okay so in, uh, if I sent you an album how quickly do you think you would turn it around uh, like what's normal with with today's budgets especially if we talk metal <laughs> yeah sure let's talk metal. yeah it's it's I mean it's different stories for each genre but uh, in metal uh, I would say I usually get five days or something that's uh, like tops uh, and then maybe yeah, th- some corrections like one hour later Later on. Oh, that's uh, it's amazing because I'm just bringing this up because, um, and I brought this up on the podcast a bit lately. Yeah, I feel like every few years the standards change. Yeah, and I feel that now, just now, in like the past year, year and a half, the standard changed for how long it's okay to spend on a metal mix, mm. and now I think that it's days. Yeah, um, for most mixers, it's days, mm. and I'm saying this because I feel like five years ago it was weeks. Mm, it wow. was normal, normal to get two to three or four weeks. And I know some guys who thought that two weeks was moving really fast. Mm. Like they want to spend a week just on that first song and then the second week on the rest. And that was considered moving quickly. Oh, wow. But now it's now it's like you spend a day on the first song maximum. Yeah. You know, and then you do the rest. Hmm. So it's it's interesting to me. So yeah, I'd consider you a fast mixer. Right. What about with pop, speed wise? What uh, kind of turnarounds? W- with pop, it's uh, it's a little bit different since I, I always do the production as well. Oh, usually I do the production, so uh, it, it's kind of hard to say since the mix is kind of integrated in. Uh, the production phase as well. So w- yeah. when I do pop, I actually do production, mixing, mastering in just one go. It's there's no 
it really goes hand in hand. Uh, by the by, the time the song is done, it's done. Yeah, yeah. That um, I mean, when I because I, I'm from that mindset that okay, now it's time for mixing, you know. Then, but always when I do pop, it ends up with. But what am I going to do? I mean, it sounds the way I like it, I, you know. So I don't know what to do else. So I just leave it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that you've had the experience where. You have a production where you're kind of mixing as you go, and then you stop and you're like, okay, now it's mixing time, and you start the mix from scratch, and it doesn't sound nearly as good. Yeah, that's right. As, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, I've had that happen a few times. Yeah, 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 that's really common, actually. Yeah, mix as you go, I think, is great if you're doing the production. I think uh, it's it's the most fun as well, like doing the production, and uh, then you have the whole idea. For me, the mixing is so so easy <laughs> if if the production is correct, uh, everything works together, and uh, it's just uh, a bliss working that way when you yourself can decide how stuff go together. And that's why I always like to track bands here myself, produce them myself, uh, instead of getting just mixes in, you know, uh, to to work on. Understood. So you've got a very crisp vocal sound. Oh, thanks. Um, can you talk about what your signal chain is for tracking vocals? Oh, yeah, I have. I mean, it's different. I always like to, I, I have like one mic that I use uh, like every year or something and I just sell it and buy another one and try out. So I don't have like a pile of mics that I uh, use all the time. And I, I always try to avoid those uh, typical um mics that everyone uses as well so right now i'm using there's two actually i have a like a um, what do you call it when you kind of modify a microphone yourself so you so i replaced the, the membrane and stuff like that so it sounds almost like a u87 or something uh, so i use that one pretty much and i also have a mojave i don't know it's i think it's an american brand mojave, mojave yeah, yeah, uh, yeah but you call it mojave yeah. interesting <laughs> i don't know yeah. I, I never said it before <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but that, i use one of the, those mics as well and it goes through um amec channel in the box basically um, and that's pretty much it uh, i compress on the way in pretty hard no eq at all through what? Uh, through the channel in the box. Uh, it, okay. it has this setting, M and M, I think it's called, and it's really smooth on vocals, I think. Uh, I, I love it. Uh, so it, it just gets that... It doesn't sound compressed, it just controls it in, in a good way, I think. So, um, yeah, that, it's really simple. I mean, what else do you need? As long as you have a great singer, great singer, great mic, great compressor. Yeah. What else do What else do you need? Exactly. Exactly. That's. Uh, it's always yeah. The the performer is everything to me. If if the voc vocalist is good, I mean that's eighty uh, percent of the work done. So, I've noticed that you infuse a lot of electronic elements into your mixes. Yeah. Um, can you give us any insight about gelling electronic or sample music in with real instruments or acoustic instruments yeah uh, yeah nowadays it's really popular with uh, blending everything together 
And uh, it, it is a struggle. Uh, I think it's uh, the hardest thing to, when you have like a, yeah, we want an 808 kick drum together with the acoustic kit and it's supposed to sound huge. Like both both things are suppo- supposed to sound huge. They don't realize that, I mean, you have just so much headroom to use. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it is a struggle, but I, but I do a lot of cheating. Like say there's an 808 kick underneath the acoustic kick. So during that part, I'll just just cut out all the low end in the kick and just keep the character of the acoustic kick maybe and keep i mean it's it's pretty obvious stuff um, and also a lot of um, it's obvious but i don't think everyone does it all right yeah yeah uh yeah so that that's that's one thing i, w- I would do in that case and also i, I do use a lot of multiband compression uh, on stuff like that like uh, say I have a good mix of uh, the electronic elements that have a, lo- a lot of low end and also a good uh, drum kit mix uh, and I just use uh, I, I group them together and treat them as an instrument later on so I do a lot of automation and uh, yeah con- controlling the low end with you know the wave C4 plug-in and stuff like that of course uh, yeah it comes handy in those cases and uh, yeah that's pretty much it. Try try to treat it like one instrument, I would say. Uh, all the percussive elements, at least. Uh, it's easier with the s- synthesizers, like, like the melodic stuff. I think it's uh, much easier. But also there, I, I, I always make all the really low-end stuff sound more mono. So I always convert everything to mono beneath 150. I don't know, it's 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 because that's, there's a rule uh, when you do a lot of uh, house music and stuff like that to keep uh, the low-end centered. It kind of gets messy on the sides uh, if you play it in a big club. So that's something I brought into even metal music and stuff like that. I know some guys who do everything below 300 oh, wow. in mono. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes, actually. Yeah, yeah. It depends on if it's a really, like, stereo spread bass, then I'll do that as well, definitely. Uh, but mo- most of the synths um, that aren't that uh, wide, I think around 150 is okay. All right. And um, I feel like one other tool that I think is fantastic for synth um, is saturation and distortion? Do you use that at all? Oh yeah, that, uh, that's a good point, man. I, I just now when you ask me these questions, I just forget, forget everything I do. Oh, it's okay. But, yeah, but saturation is really one of those really important tools. Uh, I use it more than EQ. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, more than compression. Uh, it's I think it's a wonderful tool to to shape things and. Uh, also, if it's a lot of like blippy sounds, you know, s- sounds that really are pointy and stuff, I just like to tame them with uh, some kind of tape saturation. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the definitely one of the best ways to get it to get those kind of sounds to gel into a into a mix with real instruments for some reason. Like, yeah. it helps them have their own space in the mix, but it also helps them blend. It's like it does two opposite things at the same time. Definitely, yeah. I, I love it. Um, Decapitator is probably my favorite one. Oh, I love it too. It's great. Yeah, that and Saturn. Um, now, what about your drum sample library? <laughs> How do you go yeah. about creating that? What's Do you have a 
a way of uh, creating drum samples. Let's talk about that some. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have one drum kit here, so I've been using that forever. Uh, so I've decided to just sample it in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and uh, I have different versions for it. So I have the complete raw kit and also um, a mixed version of it. And uh, yeah, so I use it in different ways. Like if I want something to sound good real fast, I'll use my mixed sounds and just blend in uh, or whatever. And uh, the raw raw kit is always as a compliment. In cases I get like mixes where just crappy drum sounds, crappy drum recordings, I, I have to replace them, you know? So, uh, that's where they come handy. And so, I, so you created them for you first. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also, I, I you you talk about those. Uh, I have on the on my website yes. a couple of kits. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, yeah. That was that was just the simplest. Those are not the uh, like the, the main ones that I use, but those are the most more simplified versions of. Uh, just some some guys asked me like, can you just put up some samples because we would love to use those, and so I did like simple simple kits for contact so people could get. Uh, just, just the taste of uh, what I use, basically. Uh, so your, will, your own I, version, I, I, your own version, is far more intricate than. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a, like tons of different versions of of the kits, basically. So, so it is bigger, and there's a lot of more multi-sampled layers and stuff like that. So, and that's something that I plan on working on later and making a more complete product, <laughs> if you could say that. Uh, but it, it also depends if people want it. I'm, I'm not really into. I'm not. I'm not a businessman. <laughs> I wish I was. But uh, uh, if people want it, I will eventually make it happen. Well, I think re- regardless of a product, let's talk about how it how how it's used in your life um, for your production. So, sounds to me like it's a great workflow enhancer, and that you can yeah. automatically fix bad-sounding drum productions in multiple styles because you have so many different versions of the yeah, kit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have, for example, the snares. I, I love to tune them in specific ways for, especially in indie pop and stuff like that. You want the snare to be really low and uh, beefy, but but not you know not in a metal way, but in a like a um, so I don't know the word for it, but but it's like really sl- sloppy, but it's cool. Uh, uh, so you have to have the snare in all those different uh, tunings to, to make them work in all different contexts, as you said. And uh, I, I usually, if I record the kit myself here with the band, I usually keep a lot of it the way it is and just enhance it a bit. If it's obviously if it's metal, I always have some additional sample going on. But uh, if it's pop, usually I just keep the kit as it is. But then if I want that sound for, say, a band contacts me and, well, we like the sound you did on that record or whatever, then I have to be able to kind of replicate that sound. And if they send me really crappy drum takes... Which is <laughs> I mean, I have normal. To, yeah, it is nowadays. It's a shame. I, I don't know why that is, but... Uh, well, it's budget. It, yeah, thing, it, I guess. there's a there's a few reasons. <laughs> I mean, it's budget, and also that a lot of people who don't know what they're doing are now recording themselves, and mm-hmm. maybe they know what they're doing enough to record DIs or something. But you know, yeah. recording drums is a whole different beast. It is. You can't. It's from- 
Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's uh, like seventy percent of the time spent is on drums. I feel like in every aspect, recording, mixing, it's always drums, drums. That's the hardest part, but it's the most fun as well. You enjoy it. I enjoy it actually. Yeah, I think it's it's so organic, and uh, when it's a good drummer, it's oh, I, I love it. I can, I can just yes, when it's when it's a good drummer. That's yeah, yeah, that exactly. Yeah, I can just. I mean, I'm a guitar player myself, but uh, when I'm on YouTube or whatever, I just watch drummers. I think it's yeah, <laughs> I think it's the coolest thing. Well, I'll agree with you. When I'm recording an amazing drummer, it's definitely like actually fun yeah like i actually really enjoy it like i get into it and i'm just like man this is so fucking awesome <laughs> but then the opposite is true when uh when there's a shitty or not so good drummer involved um it becomes the worst thing in the world yeah I, and i'd rather just program it totally agree totally agree it, it can be a nightmare and it could be the best thing ever so the uh, the reason I'm talking about your samples so much is because I think lots of guys don't take the time to make such robust samples that can that they can use in any situation. I think usually they'll just sample the kit they're recording. Hmm. You know, like they'll get the sound and then they'll sample that sound and that's it. I don't think that they'll sit there and spend extra time to get all the different versions. Exactly. I think it's, uh, for me, it's the most important thing to have a system, like uh, structure, <laughs> to, to, to be able to just bring up stuff you need uh, when it's time to use it. So when it comes to anything, samples, plugins, whatever, you just have to know where you have stuff and what they're good for and just to bring it up without having to think about it or especially samples is tricky because people can I know I, I worked with some producers that sit and just search for samples for two hours before they oh even yeah, you know I mean it's not you have to be efficient especially if you're I mean nowadays it's their tight budgets and stuff so you have to be really efficient in everything you do so uh, samples for me was I, I had to prepare everything so I know this is my stuff I know how it works I know how to make it sound the way I want to make it sound and uh, yeah it was a lot of work before the actual work <laughs> if you know what I mean I urge everyone listening to pay attention to this segment of this podcast and do the same thing with your own samples if you watch some of our Nail the Mix episodes like the one with Billy Decker for instance um, and you saw how quickly he mixed through those songs, his sample choice uh, is a big reason for why he was able to go so quickly. Like He already knew which samples were going to be layered with which other samples, precisely at what amounts, what mix ratios. And um, if you have that all figured out and it sounds great, you can move super fast. Um, the, that whole thing of choosing samples and sitting there for hours, that is such a time waster. You should do that stuff in advance. And maybe it's not going to work 100% of the time, but if 9 out of 10 times you can just go to a go-to, that's it's a phenomenal time saver. So I have some questions here from our listeners for you, actually. All right. Um, here's one from Santiago Romero. And in your opinion, what makes a modern mix sound polished and what makes a natural and organic mix sound the way it sounds? 
what makes a modern mix sound polished? Uh, I think the, the combination of the low end and the high end, uh, it's... Um, Nowadays, I, I mean, if you listen back to the 60s and stuff like that, it, uh, it was like the low end wasn't even there. And uh, there was just a lot of mids and stuff. And it, I mean, w we think it sounds really cool, but nowadays it's like the complete opposite. It, there's so much, it just goes deeper and deeper in the low end and the high end is just, you know, clear and polished. And and that, that that's, I think that's where it kind of differs from now and then, I would say. What was the other question? The, the, uh, well, I think you basically answered it. Like, what makes a natural and organic mix sound the way it sounds? Oh, right. Huh. Organic mix. Yeah, that's uh, semantics. <laughs> I think that's... Yeah, and I also think that a lot of people don't know what natural and organic actually sounds like. No, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think it's... Not that much about organic or natural nowadays. I mean, we what we do to drums nowadays has nothing to do with natural. <laughs> I think we we just yeah. completely transform the sound. Uh, yeah. But I I agree with you that it's all in the high end and the low end as opposed to older recordings. Yeah. Um, John Clock is wondering: Do you have a go-to for certain guitar sounds? Do you prefer amp sounds or plugins slash digital sounds? I've been using uh, amps for a long, long time, uh, and I, when I finally experienced the Kemper, <laughs> I, I just had to accept it. It was such a time <laughs> saver, and it, to me, if I don't play the guitar, someone else plays the guitar, and we have the setup in the other room, and we just A, B between the Kemper and the actual amp, and I, and I, I can't hear the difference, then for me... You know, it's it's a done deal. So, so I last couple of years I've been using Kemper all the way, basically. Uh, and from time to time, if there's a band that comes in with amps, I love to use it when I know we have budget for it. You know, there's time to mess around. I'll use the amps since I myself love it. I love the process of miking up amps and s s stuff like that. But to be efficient and get a, the best tone as possible. For me, the Kemper is what I use mainly right now. Definitely one of the best inventions in uh, guitar in years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> I, I don't understand how it works. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's. I, I love that thing. Yeah. Um, Robin Lejean is wondering, how has the transition from Pro Tools to Reaper made a difference, if it has, to your workflow? What are the pros and cons? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I've, I've been talking about Reaper so much with all all the people that come in here. <laughs> I'm just completely blown away, and I don't I don't understand why I didn't make the switch earlier. It's, I mean, where do I begin? Uh, all the co you know the custom actions stuff like that where you can customize your whole workflow. It's, mm -hmm. it's such a time saver. I mean, I save so much more time now than before and so I have like shortcuts for any every little unique thing that I do myself it's, say I want to du duplicate samples that matches the previous track like really complex stuff like that and you just want to copy paste through the whole project I can have just one button and it does the whole thing for me in a second that would take me like forever earlier in Pro Tools 
Uh, and that, that's just a big thing for me. And also, I mean, I, I come from uh, Pro Tools 9 HD and there was no offline bounce. Uh, that's also a big thing when I <laughs> want to send stems to bands. Well, they, they have added that. I know, I know that. So, that, yeah, so I, that's why I mentioned I used the 9. So, so that was, uh, for, for me, it was a big thing. But I know Pro Tools has changed a lot since then. Uh, but uh, I don't know, just a bunch of stuff. Uh, I could just bring the whole template from Pro Tools into Reaper and it was 90% the same thing for me. It wasn't like a big transition. It, I could use the same key commands and everything. So it wasn't a big deal making the switch, uh, but it was a huge deal for me seeing all the benefits with Reaper. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could go on forever with Reaper. but <laughs> I'd love to hear about it. I'm sure that some people yeah. listening would love to hear about it. Yeah, so, so the co cost, custom action thing is huge. And also the, all the effects chains. And, um, so, so, so now, now, I mean, there are a lot of talk about templates and stuff. People don't like to use templates. But, but for me, it has changed things quite a lot just being able to bring in stuff as effects chains all over the place so say it's a whole mix I could bring in whole mix or I can just bring in sends from another session so I can bring in whatever uh, it's really customizable so you, it's not just like locked into one system you can you can actually choose what what you want to bring in and it's really quick uh, also having uh, say i work on an album and i can have the whole album open in different projects say 10 sessions at the same time and uh, the cpu doesn't it doesn't affect it at all i could uh, just jump between projects okay let's work on this so it's it's a time saver in many ways like that small small things Uh, yeah, but those small things add up. Yeah, definitely. That's what I noticed, and uh, it's really, really valuable. And and, and uh, another thing that I like is that uh, the whole uh, approach, having it so cheap and available to people, and they listen to people. Uh, it's like a, you know, it's not like a big company that they hide everything from their customers it's, it's really a, it's a good community and people help each other and they listen to you and bring in all those features you you need and yeah it's it's really cool another thing if i can continue on this one uh, oh, look I, i gotta tell you that there's not very many voices that come on this podcast to talk about reaper or why it's so cool all right and a lot of people have some weird opinions on that program yeah. and uh and i personally don't care which DAW people use i think you should use whatever you're comfortable i with, agree but i agree i just think it's good to have someone who makes stuff for major labels and who has great sounding material come on here and talk about reaper because it just doesn't happen very often oh that's interesting um, and we do and we do have a lot of reaper users so i'm Yeah, so please tell us more. I'm very curious about this. Yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting to hear. I didn't know that. I, I thought that Reaper was more accepted nowadays. I was one of those guys that actually, I, I, I just didn't buy into the thing. I was really skeptical until I tried it, actually. It's accepted among beginners, but I don't yeah. think it's very accepted among the pros. No, I, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, for me, it's the portability as well, like having the whole... Uh, application on a USB stick and with all your preferences, everything, you just bring it. Where, I like to travel a lot, so I want to be able to work wherever I am. 
for me it's a big deal to be able to bring the exact session exact com- like my computer with the exact settings and everything it's just supposed to work you know so it's really efficient in that way uh, and the thing i was about to say uh, when i track guitars for example so you have one track one track is everything so you you doesn't matter if it's video midi or audio or whatever it's all it's, everything's just one tr- it's just one track for everything so even if you have uh, you might up a guitar cab you have tens of microphones so that track can be you can have a separate mixer in that track so you don't have to mess with like 10 tracks in a session that's one guitar and you group them and try to treat them as one so in reaper it's all treated as one track but uh, you have a separate mixer in that track as a plug-in so you can control the levels of uh, all the separate microphones and that's also really good for organizing stuff in in the session it can be so that's messy. actually really cool it's it's amazing that's uh, I, I miss that feature and that's uh, like in pro tools earlier i was kind of hesitant to use a lot of microphones since ah, it, it will get messy you know i don't want to try that so i got a bit yeah. lazy you know <laughs> so now i just go nuts you know and if something doesn't work just mute it on that track and it doesn't matter if i record it i just it's muted you don't hear it you know well that's one of the things that i tell people the most about why you should have a really defined template or workflow or a setup because if you don't it'll make you lazy because if things are if things take too long for the point where you have the idea in your head to actually being able to execute it in your daw if it takes too long more than likely you're going to stop trying. Hmm. Um, you need to be able to move on your ideas quickly and not have the DAW be in your way. Exactly. Not not let the DAW be a hindrance. And I've personally done this where before I got organized with my workflow, I, would, I call it mixing yourself into a corner. Hmm. Like you mix yourself into a corner and create a problem. And then to solve the problem would be so complicated because I didn't have the workflow worked out properly that I would sometimes stall out on mixes and not know how to how to finish. And a perfect example was in a Nail the Mix session again with Billy Decker where he tried to do this delay trick over one of the songs he was mixing. And the way he did it at first kind of sounded like poop <laughs> and it wasn't working. And right away, he found another way to do it and rerouted things and within five minutes he had it and it sounded fucking perfect and since I know Pro Tools real well I know that the only reason he was able to have an idea it sounds like crap try something else perfect done uh, was because his template and his understanding of Pro Tools and workflow are so developed that he can just move quickly and if they weren't that developed he might have gone to idea number one that didn't sound very good and been like, oh, man, it doesn't sound good. Let's just drop it. Mm. Let's not try any harder to get it to sound great because it'll take too long and I don't want to sit here for 45 minutes working on a delay. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a really good point. And, and I would like to add that even if I'm now trying to sell the Reaper to all the folks over there, <laughs> I'm not saying that people should switch to Reaper. If you know your DAW, that's... I mean, stick. If, if you're happy and you can make stuff sound the way you want it, use your DAW. I mean, that's the most important thing. Like you said, being, I mean, knowing it really well is more important than what another DAW can do, basically. 
Yeah, because grass is always greener. Yeah. But um, yeah. here's another question from Robin. Um, he said, what's your approach on recording drums? Do you want to use as much of the live drums as possible, or do you go in with a mindset of using samples later on? Uh, if the drummer is good, if I, I when, when I I always my mindset is always I want to use the real drums. And when we start to sound check and I feel the drummer like I, I can hear this is doable or not. If I feel that man, this is a great drummer, there's no way for me to even think about samples at that point. I just try to make it sound as good as possible, um, and uh, the samples will then be more like an addition to the whole thing. But if I during soundcheck just feel oh man this this drummer can't even play a straight beat you know it sounds awful <laughs> i of course i then just uh, already in advance think of uh, okay what kind of sound and I'll, I'll almost immediately bring in samples uh, in the session even if i don't use them right away i just keep them there to uh, yeah to to quickly then during editing being able to make it sound good so the band doesn't yeah, so so they also like the sound of it because it's hard. If if, if the drummer hits poorly, uh, it's it's not tight at all. It's hard to get a good drum sound. It's, it's impossible, I would say. I think that the drummer is like ninety percent of the drum sound. Oh yeah, yeah. And I've done this test <laughs> um, <clears throat> before where you change out every other little thing down to the preamp. And it's amazing how little those other things matter compared to the drummer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people like to focus on preamps and gear like that, especially online. But in reality, you need to be focusing on the drummer. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And that's a big reason why I ditched a lot of stuff here. I just keep it so simple with gear. and Yeah, just focus on connecting with the musicians and get the best out of them to begin with. And then you have your amazing computer with all the technology that we didn't have before. And you can always take care of stuff later. But the most important thing is to... Get, get the best out of musicians uh, you have. Yeah, that's that'll get you like 80 or 90% of the way home. Yeah. If you get great results out of a human. Hmm. Um, so Jack Hartley is wondering, could you give some insight into your involvement on the Humanities Last Breath self-titled? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Buster is uh, he's a <laughs> amazing dude. <laughs> he does a great job. Man, he's come a long way, it's hasn't crazy. he? It's crazy. It's it's uh, just crazy. I, I remember, I mean, when he approached me with that album, uh, he I didn't know who he was. Uh, nobody, I, I don't think many people knew who he was. That, that wasn't too long ago. What was that, 2013 or something? I don't remember. But so, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, since then, I mean, he's huge. <laughs> But but anyway, he. If anyone's wondering, check out the latest Oceano record. Oh yeah, which sounds massive. Yeah, he's done that that one. Yeah, really good job. Uh, yeah, and he's really he's he's he got a feeling for the heavy genre. He he knows how to make it sound cool. He knows what people like, and he yeah he, he has a great feel for that. But anyway, he he approached me with that one uh, to I don't know he he already did some kind of mix. He so, sent me the files, but they sounded really good from scratch. So I did like 
some mixing tweaks, you know, and uh, mainly uh, adding some effects and mastering, basically. So uh, the mix was kind of... Uh, he'd done a good job with the raw files already. So, I mean, it was just polishing the stuff. He, that's why I kind of got into contact with him again, since I was looking for someone to work for me here. And I thought that was the most amazing production I've ever heard from anyone sending something to be mixed or mastered. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's what it was. He, he did a great job with production, so it was really simple work on that one. Um, yeah. That definitely helps. So, yeah. uh, Giovanni Angel's wondering, what's your least favorite trend in metal today? Least favorite trend in metal? Oh, man, I'm, I, I, don't even, I don't even follow the trends. I don't know what's trendy. Um, yeah, same here. I <laughs> uh, hardly listen to music nowadays. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't... I mean, trends are... Tr- there will always be trends. And uh, if I don't like it, someone else likes it. If it's a trend then most people like it. So I can't be against that. I don't know. I, I don't. Right? That's kind of how I see it too, which is, first of all, you can't always like everything you work on, but you should trick yourself into liking it yeah. while you're working on it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you're done, you know, like a prostitute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, she doesn't have to think about you afterwards, but uh, if she wants to really earn it and do a great job... She should make you feel like she likes you, um, and uh, and I feel like it's kind of similar when you're working with music. Uh, you should trick yourself into liking it while you're working on it, so that you can do a great job. Um, I've had to do that many times because my personal tastes, for instance, with metal, uh, haven't been really, for instance, with like the breakdowny kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's that's like most bands now yeah for or maybe not most but a huge number of them and if you want to work in the modern day you better know how to do that stuff uh there's just no way out of it so you know trick yourself that's my opinion don't worry about trends i totally agree totally agree so here's another one from robin uh which is how did you get the adept gig production is amazing oh wow thanks um, well, that, that's an interesting story. They recorded the whole album uh, in uh, in Gothenburg, uh, Studio Friedman. All of you have heard of that studio, probably. Of course, and we have uh, Henrik. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, he, uh, I actually heard that. He actually, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, Henrik is coming on Nail the Mix this month, and uh, he actually—it's kind of funny. Um, he asked me to ask you what it's like re-recording an album he already recorded <laughs> yeah there, there you have the story <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah I, I don't know really what happened there was something with the, the Adept's label or something they they couldn't get the record uh, the, the label owned the record in some way and they didn't want to release it I, I don't know yeah so he recorded it they recorded it once all the way through yeah, with Henry yeah yeah the whole album was almost done I think there was some stuff I mean they, they, they changed some production things they said like that this was the most expensive pre-production we ever did <laughs> like the budget was bigger for the pre-production than the actual album but um, 
yeah, so they uh, they changed a lot of stuff later on. So it, it kind of was a good thing after all, but uh, it was expensive, <laughs> really expensive for them. So we did redid the whole album and did some changes and add more vocals and stuff. And yeah, I, I've yeah. That's and for people who don't understand why that would happen, basically a label owns what they pay for, even if it's your band. Mm. So they own those masters. Um, so if whatever happened with the band and the label, the label wasn't going to release it, and the band just decided, fuck that, we're making our album, mm. right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. So um, that's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> Kind of, kind of shitty, but I'm glad that it worked out <laughs> yeah. um, in the end. They have a lot of but willpower. Just because, well, the, yeah, I was going to say, for the band, I've heard of that type of story destroying bands. Mm, yeah. um, that type of thing almost destroyed my band at one point in time, um, and we eventually got our album, our second album, released, but it was released a year later than it needed to be, and it you know, there's nothing we could do about it. Hmm. So I know very much, and I, like I said, I know people whose entire careers were destroyed by getting shelved by the label. So it says a lot that the band was like, "Fuck that." Yeah, yeah. yeah they, Not gonna let it happen. Yeah, they're good, good guys in that way. They uh, really uh, have a passion for what they do. It seems so. It worked out. Here's a question from Colton Vance, and I really kind of wish that he was more specific, but. uh <laughs> Here it is anyways. All right. What's the best way to use your time wisely? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not this yeah. line of work. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, use your, okay, I guess he means in, in production. Study, ec- study economics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, do something of value. Uh, oh, man. Um, well... That's that's a tough one, man. I, I don't know what to say. I think that uh, what we've been talking about this whole time about setting up your workflow to where you can change a bad situation into a good one very quickly. Yeah. Um, and not, you know, whether it's having your drum sample libraries already customized and ready to go and easy to find in case you get bad drum tracks or having your templates set up Mm. to where you don't mix yourself into a corner that you can't get out of quickly. I think that spending the time to get your workflow awesome, quick and efficient, that is a great way to use your time wisely. Yeah, that's so true. Very good point. Yeah, just That's, prepare. Yeah, prepare everything so it so so you can just get to work, and uh, yeah. Here's one from Eric Egghammer, which is uh, how do you work with room mics while recording drums? I have an interesting uh, situation here. My my recording room isn't that big, so what I do, I do some. Um, put up some mics in the whole studio, like the hallway, and uh, like just try to capture the biggest uh, point in the studio that sounds like the hugest room. Uh, it's it's not the optimal, <laughs> but it's uh, I just managed to get it to work for me. Uh, I can imagine that when I had people over here recording for me, tracking some other band when I'm not available here, uh, they get all lost. They don't know what to do because the room is so small. So I just found ways around it. Uh, uh, and I always use a stereo pair, basically left, right, 
uh, and they they're always on the same spot. Uh, so yeah, and it's, it's basically the hallway, the kitchen. My kitchen is uh, my room mics, uh, basically. So you just figure out how to make the most out of the space that you have to work with. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so it's not optimal in any way, but it's uh, it works for me, and I know how to treat it uh, uh, later on in the mix as well. So that's what matters. Yeah, for me, that's what matters. But but I I totally understand that it's it's hard to kind of sell, pitch my studio for some uh, tracking. You know, it's it's always uh, it's uh, obviously. I, if the budgets are better, I always go to another place and track drums. Uh, that that would be the preferable thing. But mm-hmm. uh, but I, I can manage to make make it sound the way I like it anyway here. Fair enough. And another question from Eric, which is, what makes a band interesting so that you want to work with them? Uh, passion. I mean, if they have a vision and. When, when when they don't say I want to sound like that band you did, that that's when I when I'm interested. <laughs> or if they do a genre that I'm not that familiar in, that's that's to me interesting. Well, what if they said I want to sound like a record somebody else did? That's even worse. Yeah, that's even yeah yeah that's <laughs> definitely worse. <laughs> that makes it just harder, but as as boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've gotten that before. Like I want. Like a band coming in and they're like, we want it to sound like Joey Sturgis's in your mix. I said, well, why don't you go to Joey Sturgis? I could give you his phone number, text him. Yeah, that's, that always blows my mind. Why, why do people want that? I, I don't get it. Yeah, it's like, I don't know how to do that. Go to him. Exactly. That's <laughs> uh, crazy. Like, you're not going to be happy if that's what you want. So um, final question, and this is, Another one from Robin Lejean, which is, uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's our like our top student in Nelvin. Yeah, Mix. I know, also, I know, I know. He's a, he's a great guy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, he said, "How did you go about balancing the electronic dubstep elements in many of the Beyond Recognition songs on Drop Equals Dead? And what would you have as tips and tricks to actually have them blend in well to a dense?" metalcore mix where everything needs to cut and sound clear it's a really good question and that that's one of those i mentioned before really strug- struggled um, uh, like uh, blending those uh, 808s and stuff like that with uh, acoustic drums that, that uh, as i said before like a lot of uh, c4 going on and a lot of uh, automating uh, the kick, acoustic kick drum, uh, automating the low end, basically just cutting out the stuff where you don't notice it, but it's uh, helping the headroom a lot. So just a lot of automation, I would say, in those situations. And and once again, I, I, on those on beyond all recognition stuff, I always treated everything as one uh, instrument. So even if it's Electronic and acoustic drums together; those are treated as one, basically. So they're supposed to sound like one coherent thing throughout the song. And uh, so a lot of bus processing, I would say, uh, with multiband compression, and uh, and then on the individual tracks, obviously a lot of uh, automation with EQ and stuff to get things to sound to not pop out all over the place because obviously if there's a part with just acoustic drums and then all of a sudden you have the electronic beats going on that are supposed to sound huge but you still want to keep it smooth you have to do a lot of automation I think 
Automation's king. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dino, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been great. Yeah, uh, we should do this again sometime. Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, where can people find you online? Oof, I'm I'm so I'm not the best social media guy, but I have I have a website, uh, dinomedanhodzik.com. And uh, I do have Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, but uh, I'm not not the best in updating. And <laughs> well, if they just want to check out your work. Yeah, I mean, they just go to your website. Yeah, I'm, yeah, they can check out my website. I think that's the best. Yeah. All right. Well, there you heard it. And if uh, you didn't catch the spelling, just go to the show notes for this podcast, and uh, we're linking to his website. So. Tino, thank you. Thank you again. Thanks. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Loadbox, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www. 2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.